our scripture reading is going to be John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. And so if you are turned there, I invite you to follow along as I read. Then, just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. Now, our gracious Heavenly Father, may um, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak to us through your word today, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this is continuing part two of the passage that we've started to look at last week in John chapter one of the story, famous story of the uh, woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And last week we looked at the conversation between the woman at the well and Jesus proper and today we're looking a little bit at the, the outcome. And there's two basic outcomes. One, we saw a little bit of it last week, and that was the outcome of the woman coming to believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And that her going to share with all of the townspeople. And the outcome was many in the town had come to believe that Jesus was, as they say in their words, the Savior of the world, and that he is. This week, I want to focus a little bit on his interaction with his disciples and primarily verses 31 through 38. So while the woman 
Jesus in the conversation with the woman ends and the woman leaves her water jar. She goes back to the town and excitedly shares with all of the people in the town. And the townspeople, they believe the woman and then they make their way out of town to go to where Jesus is at the well. In that interim, John records for us the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples and what he has to teach them. And what he's teaching them is uh, about, we would say, what we call uh, evangelism, sharing the good news with others. And so let's look at the setting and go through this story. And then I'd like to, to focus on a couple of lessons that we could learn that Jesus has reminding his disciples. He's teaching his disciples about sharing the gospel with others. So here's the setting, reminding where we are. Um, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Now, they had just come back from buying food in the town of, of Sychar. And this is, remind ourselves where this is. This is the ancient city of Shechem. Uh, but in the New Testament period, it's called the town of Sychar. Is right between uh, the little valley that is right between Mount, uh, Mount Gerizim on the south and Mount Ebal on the north. And if those names don't sound familiar to you, maybe if you think about the, um, the book of Joshua, where uh, Joshua leads all of the people of Israel into the promised land, and eventually they make their way up there, and they have a covenant renewal ceremony. They're renewing the covenant. He has half of the tribes of Israel on one of those mountains, and he's at the valley, and he has the other half on the other, uh, on the other side. This place ends up becoming the, uh, the center, the first capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel, after the kingdom divides after Solomon, the capital city of the northern kingdom at first is this town here, and then it ends up moving a few uh, miles up the road to the town or the city of Samaria later. So this is where they are. Jesus is by the, the well outside of town. Um, the woman is coming in the middle of the day. And she has this interaction with Jesus. She comes to understand that he's the Messiah. And then she leaves and then is bringing the town people back out. And Jesus is with the disciples here. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, these great words, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples being so quick to catch Jesus's teaching and meaning. I'm just kidding here. They were tended to be quite slow. The disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat while we were gone? So uh, this is the, the setting that Jesus is going to now give them some instructions here on about, about what had just happened. He had just kind of shared the, uh, in preliminary form and preliminary way, the gospel that the kingdom has come, that he is the Messiah, he's the king. And he's done this with this woman. And they're misunderstanding a little bit of what Jesus says to them about food to eat. And, and we shouldn't really blame the disciples here for their sl being slow to misunderstand and catch Jesus's meaning because we've seen this actually many times. This is how kind of the narrative has so far has gone in John's uh, gospel. Remember John chapter three, Jesus is meeting Nicodemus at, at, at night. Nicodemus comes 
uh, and has this conversation with Jesus. And he says, I tell you the truth, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus goes, wait, I have to go into my mother's womb a second time? Not understanding. Likewise, when Jesus last week was talking with the woman at the well, and he says to her, you know, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me and I would give you living water. And she's like, you don't have a bucket to draw with. You know, just misunderstanding what Jesus was getting at in these meetings. Similarly, he's saying here, I have food you guys don't know anything about. And they're like, somebody brought him food? But Jesus goes on to explain, verse 34, and he's talking here about the satisfaction he has in accomplishing his mission, which is the mission that God gives him. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What is meant by this image of food? Food is satisfying, a necessary need. And sometimes it's not just satisfying when it's meeting the need of hunger and we need nutrition. It also satisfies the need when it's just a wonderful, delicious meal. And the idea of having eaten this wonderful food and feeling satisfied from it, Jesus is using that imagery in the picture to correspond with his, with his ministry and what he has just accomplished with this woman. I, whenever I think of this story, I think of um, my Israel trip, my most recent Israel trip, which has now been 12 years ago, which wasn't so long. But um, And on my Israel trip, we would, uh, we would often go hiking to our various locations. So we would take a bus from wherever we were staying that night. They would drop us off, and we would have to hike to various locations, and we would stop for a snack or some water, and then we would have a little teaching or Bible study, and then we would go on to the place that we were going. And um, we calculated it, it. This was, you know, 15-day trip. It, we averaged anywhere from 6 to 10 miles a day hiking in high altitudes, like 3,000 uh, 3, feet or higher. Uh, and often it was uh, in the hundreds. And it was hot, it was dusty, it was dry, but it was awesome. But I remember when we would stop for lunch, we would find, and shade was rare, as where we were out in the wilderness areas, we would find a little piece of shade, even if it was just the trunk of a tree, we would just kind of hunker under there, and we would wait for the food to be prepared for us. And the food consisted of this, Wonder Bread, peanut butter, and Nutella sandwiches. And they were amazing. I mean, because if you've just been hiking five hours and it's 100 degrees, you would never have guessed a Wonder Bread peanut butter Nutella sandwich could be so um, fancy and luxurious. It was just wonderful uh, because it satisfied that need. And I remember when we would eat it, we would just be like, this is amazing. Some days we would actually get like, uh, like falafel sandwiches. And, um, and I mean, those days were just off the charts. We were just like in heaven. Um, but it was so satisfying. And so whenever I think about Jesus and having this food, and he's like, I've got food that you don't, even the most satisfying food that you could think of, um, Jesus is saying, even the most satisfying food is nothing compared to what I've just experienced. And that is, to do the work, 
to do the mission that God has sent me. God the Father has sent me to do. Elsewhere, Jesus uses this, this picture of food. As a matter of fact, it's actually in, in Deuteronomy. Um, Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, speaking about hunger and feeding, he's speaking of the Lord. He says, the Lord humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you do not know. And nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So it's better to hear and obey God than it is um, to uh, even be satisfied with food. Similarly, Jesus, and Jesus used that exact scripture reference when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. When Satan came, he said, why don't you just turn this, you know, these, this stone to, to bread since you've been fasting for 40 days. And he says to him, it's, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's similar to what Jesus is saying, saying here. That my food is to do the will of whom, him who sent me. And then Jesus says this to his disciples, verse 35. Um, do you not say, and he uses a, an illustration from a common expression here. There are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Now we don't know if... if this is just a common expression, like, you know, a parable. We don't have any record of that anywhere else. Or if maybe we could kind of tell that maybe this is where the time of the, the year that Jesus is here with his disciples, um, you know, suggesting that maybe for the harvest was actually four months further out. Uh, we don't know, but you get the idea. We're, we're, we're in the in-between time. The, the crops have been sowed, sown. Uh, the seeds have been sown, but the crops aren't up yet. And he's saying, so you know this, we're four yet months away from the harvest time. But he says, look, even though you might say that, look, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So in our physical world, we have, we have seasons and cycles. And sometimes those seasons and cycles are very long. Like right now. But the idea here for us, it's slightly different in, in uh, Israel's calendar, but for us, it's in the spring you plant. And in the, the late summer or, or fall, you harvest. And in the winter, it's dormant. And then you go through those cycles. What Jesus is saying here from an earthly perspective, hey, you know, maybe the harvest is, a, is some time off. He goes, but I want you to open up your eyes, lift up your eyes, Look ahead, capture the bigger picture horizon, or horizon here and see that the harvest is already here. He's not talking about the actual grains and crops coming up. He's now switching to the metaphor of people coming to understand and know and believe in the Messiah because the Messiah is now here. You have now the beginnings of this End time age is happening here with Jesus in his ministry. One commentator says, in the salvation historical plane, the harvest has already begun. And Jesus himself is engaged in that harvest. This whole narrative with Jesus and this woman is an example of that harvest. And this is 
This one commentator said, part and parcel with the work the Father gave him to do. So Jesus is engaged in this harvest of having people come to believe the message of the kingdom and receive Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus is engaged in that ministry, and that's just as much a part of the work that um, the Father had sent him to accomplish as his work will be of atoning for sin on the cross. Jesus is engaged in spreading the good news, or as we would say, evangelism, which is just uh, the, from the Greek word euangelion, which is the gr- good news, to preach good news. Jesus is engaged in that here, even as he is the Messiah. And I can't help but think that when Jesus is saying, look at in the fields are white for harvest, they're ready for harvest, it, it's, uh, I can't help but think that he's talking about even the crowd of people that the woman had gone into town to tell, and they're making their way out, because that's what happens here at the end of these verses, right? It says that they came to him, and they wanted to hear from Jesus himself, and he, they asked him to stay with him for a couple more days. And many believed in his word. So verse 40, it says they came out to him there. I can't help but think in this dialogue with his disciples as he's talking with his disciples. He goes, lift up your eyes and look. He's not just saying kind of figuratively or picture in your mind. He's saying, look, the people are coming. In a hated town, by the way. So Jesus tells them to look, to lift up their eyes. And I, I was interesting to kind of see that lift up your eyes in the Old Testament. That's, that's a, a saying that's used quite frequently at very key spots in the Old Testament. Um, I could give you several. Let me just for sake of time, just give you one in Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 12, the Lord God had come to Abraham and he called him and he said, Abraham, come follow me. Leave your, leave your family, leave your people and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And Abraham does. But then in Genesis 13, the Lord says to Abraham, uh, after he and Lot had separated, he uses this phrase, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. It says northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that I see, that you see, I will give you to you and your offspring forever. And I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. And then he tells them to walk all through the land. But it's there. He doesn't just say, look. He says, lift up your eyes. As Abraham is journeying, and he's just had this interaction with with Lot, the Lord God says, hey, take your eyes off of the temporal situations that you're in and look larger lift up your eyes look to the horizon look east west north south look all around and this is where he reiterates this promise i'm going to give you all of this so it's not just a call to see in the old testament that that hebrew expression lift up your eyes and look it's not just a call to see, it's a call to pay attention. It's to call to look beyond what uh, normally would capture your attention. 
beyond what is immediately preoccupying um, your focus and instead to look to the look to the horizon. The disciples at this point are preoccupied with food, right? Verses 31 through 33. Hey, Rabbi, eat. Wait, did somebody bring him some food? And Jesus here is concerned with much larger realities. The disciples were preoccupied with food and physical daily realities. Jesus wanted to to open their eyes up to spiritual realities. They were also concerned with social realities. What would happen to their rabbi's reputation if he was seen socializing with an immoral female Samaritan? And Jesus wanted to get their eyes beyond seeing just an immoral female Samaritan, but to see a potential member of the kingdom of the Messiah. And in this, Jesus found joy and he found satisfaction in doing God's will, in seeing sinners repent of their sin and coming to him as Messiah and Savior. He wanted to see all who would come to him. He wanted to see all who believe in him and come to him, be they a man of high reputation, a Pharisee, a respected teacher of Israel like Nicodemus, or an adulterous Samaritan woman. And in bringing this to pass, you you see the joy and satisfaction that Jesus has in this mission. And here is kind of one of our first lessons here, that Jesus, I think, is teaching the disciples and then by extension teaching us, that it calls us to, in this task of sharing and communicating the good news of Christ with others, it requires us to stop, to take a break from focusing on the immediate and to get the bigger picture. And I know this is, this is very difficult with bills and budgets and home repair and groceries and shopping and family schedules and laundry, etc., etc. Not with that, without neglecting these things, which are very important and essential things. But may we too pause, may we lift up our eyes and look and see the spiritual realities, the potential harvest that is around us. Jesus continues in verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. Now, remind us, where where are we here? Remember, Jesus is stopped by the well outside of this town of Sychar. Verse 5, right? And, And I mentioned this earlier. This is the... New Testament name for uh, the ancient city of Shechem. That name might sound familiar. So the ancient city of Shechem in New Testament times, you know, after the splitting of the north and south kingdoms and the Assyrians coming and conquering, you know, names of places would sometimes change. And so it's the name Sychar, a little later, about a century later, it gets renamed by the Romans as Neapolis. And today, the modern name is Nablus, which is a corruption of Neapolis. They just kind of 
you know, an, Arab, an Arabic corruption of it. And like I said, at one time, this was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. So it's significant that Jesus is here. He's talking about this coming, uh, this incoming of Samaritans who were um, of mixed race and hated by the Jews. And Jesus is here in the middle of that, and you're seeing the fruit of people who are this hated race coming to believe that he was the savior of the world. Do you remember the book, The End of Amos, in our series in The Minor Prophets? Might be helpful to remind ourselves of the end of Amos. Remember, Amos was a prophet from down south in Judah. And he was called by the Lord to go and speak these words of judgment to the northern kingdom of Israel for their idolatry, for their immorality. And it was a long and pretty dark book. But at the very end of the book, there's this note of hope of restoration. Beginning in verse 11 of chapter 9 of Amos. Where the Lord God says... After all of destruction that's going to come on the northern kingdom of Israel, he says, and in that day, speaking of the day that's to come, when he comes, returns, and he brings his servant of the Lord to come, I will raise up the booth of David. That's the um, a reference to this, the kingdom of, of David that has fallen and repair its breaches. I will raise up its ruins. I will build, rebuild it in days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming. Now, stop with there with those first couple of verses. He's talking about the rebuilding of all of this and that all of the nations, all of the nations, are going who are called by my name will be rebuilt into this house of David, this booth of David. And then notice the picture he uses in verses 13 and 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. Do you catch that imagery there and this restoration of Israel that it's going to be like, you know what it's going to be like? It's going to be like harvest time constantly. The plowman the person who is plowing the fields to put the seed into the ground for it to grow, he's going to catch up to the reaper, the guy who's cutting the crop down and harvesting. It's going to be so abundant in this, this end times picture of the restoration of God's people. It's going to be like, you know, the guy plowing is going to be like waiting. Hey, could you hurry up with the harvesting? Because we're ready. The seed could go into the ground again. And then notice what it says. And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. 
meaning the treader of grapes is going to overtake the one who's going to sow the seed. So meaning the person who's sowing the seed that's going to turn into a grape plant, they're already, no, well, no longer is the seed in the ground that the person who's treading the grapes is right behind. Like it's a picture that, that the harvest is going on right now, constantly. In a spiritual sense, this is what this, this harvest is going to be like. And we know from the book of Acts that when the Gentiles, remember they're having this debate about salvation and what do you, how Jewish do you need to be in order to be saved? Or uh, how Jewish do you need to be in order to be saved and become a Christian? Well, you've got to be totally Jewish. If you're a Gentile, you have to be, can come to the laws of Moses and get circumcised before you can be a Christian. And Paul and Peter and all of them were like, no, 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 that's not how it works. We're, we're in this end time age. The harvest is happening. You're having Gentiles, those who are of all the nations who are called by my name. They're coming to Christ without having to become Jewish. And remember the council in Jerusalem and James stands up and he goes, this is what the passage Amos 9 is about. The restoration of, of Israel, the booth of David being rebuilt. That is all of the nations coming in and receiving Jesus as Messiah. Do you see that here now? Like Jesus using this is like the, the sower and the reaper. The harvest is happening now. And then he tells them this, verse 38, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now here is probably a reference to the Old Testament prophets, perhaps even uh, John the Baptist and Jesus himself. And he's telling them, you as my disciples, the, the harvest is happening now. Guys, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. You're entering into the labor of this kind of harvest. And they do. John doesn't record this specifically for us, but you can't help but think that what is actually happening here is those, those people. Jesus, no, no sooner does Jesus utter those words and help the disciples to understand their role in sharing the good news starts right now. And those people come from the village and they hear and they believe these wonderful words. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So even in the midst of this, Jesus sharing this gospel, he has a lesson for all of his disciples, a lesson for them. This is, I want you to get a, a, some picture of evangelism here. So here's some lessons on evangelism that I'd like to share uh, with you that's illustrated in this whole thing. Jesus being kind of the model evangelist for us. And um, these, some of these are just reworked from um, and expanded on uh, the work of uh, one commentator named Murray J. Harris. But, but here they are. Here's six. In spite of tiredness, Jesus grasps an opportunity. So remember verse 6, 
Jesus sits down by the well. He's weary from his journey. And it's the sixth hour. It's the middle of the day. Probably wanted nothing more than to just take a nap. And it's right at that time that this woman shows up at the well. And again, at a very unusual time of the day. Signifying her hiding socially from those around her. And yet, even in this tiredness here, Jesus takes this opportunity to share with this woman. So he strikes up a conversation. Give me a drink. So in spite of tiredness, he grasps for an opportunity. This is connected a little bit with what we saw earlier about the lift up your eyes and see the harvest. The fields are ripe for harvest. Oh, Oh, that we would see the opportunities that we have, that we would lift up our eyes from the mundane and look for not just the physical realities around us, but the spiritual realities of conversations that we could have with other people. That's a challenge for me. I think post this last two years, um, I think it's been very easy to kind of be a recluse is that the right way to say it? Recluse? Recluse? Oh, to shake that tendency off and to be able to see the opportunities that are around us. So in spite of tiredness, grabs the opportunity. May we grab opportunities too. Number two, he, that is Jesus, establishes a rapport by a request that indicates humility. Okay, that's a good you know, how could we establish a rapport with, with someone who doesn't know Christ and hasn't received the gospel? How could we do that? Remember, he just kind of says, give me a drink. Jesus was thirsty. What are some ways that we could kind of establish rapport with those around us? Do you strike up conversations with people, like say if you're on an airplane on a business trip or something like that? How many of you strike up conversations on the airplane? How many, how many, of, you, you do, <laughs> how many of you cringe when somebody, you're sitting next to somebody who's striking up a conversation on an airplane, yeah? Um, maybe be, be open to those kinds of opportunities and maybe you just kind of establish that rapport with somebody. That's number, number two. Number three, Jesus challenges this woman's thinking by a provocative comment that moves from the literal to the figurative. Notice in verse 10, he asks her for water, and he's, she's in, in a little bit mystified here. She's like, wait a second, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman from Samaria, for something to drink? And Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was asking you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he'd have given you living water. What, what an interesting, provocative little comment there to get her to think. In one of our home groups, we just did a, a study, a video study on um, uh, a book called Tactics from Greg Kokel, and it's about how to do apologetics with People. And it's all about how to have the conversations uh, with people. And he talks about the pebble in your shoe. You remember this? Talking about that? Leaving something, a little comment for them. 
uh, as a pebble in their shoe to get them to kind of, as they, when this conversation with a stranger might end, you walk in different ways and never see them again. But what could you leave, what could you, what could you say to kind of leave them to get them thinking? Jesus does that here with this comment. Well, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water, and this is the type of water I'd give you. Number four, Jesus does not fear being misunderstood. And there's kind of two parts to this. Yet, he gently um, is correcting her misunderstanding. Jesus offers her water, and she thinks it's real water. You know, you don't have a bucket. And Jesus is okay with her misunderstanding him and then gently corrects her misunderstanding in verses 13 and 14. Well, the water I'm talking about is different than this water. This water you'll drink and you'll be thirsty again. You'll have to come back here again. But the water that I give will never be thirsty again. And instead, that water actually will become like a spring welling up to eternal life. How many of us avoid sharing the gospel with somebody or entering into spiritual conversations with somebody because you would fear being misunderstood or fear that they might change their opinion about you? Maybe we could take some encouragement in this idea that Jesus didn't didn't really fear being misunderstood. And when you share the gospel with somebody because of the nature of the state that they're in, remember they're in our lost and fallen state, our, our minds are depraved. We're, we're depraved in mind. We, in our sinful state, suppress the truth about God and unrighteousness. We, it is required that God's going to have to do a supernatural rebirth in the life of somebody. So the chance of being misunderstood is very high. Very high. So don't fear being misunderstood because that's going to happen. And yet, patiently and gently correct or rectify that misunderstanding. Jesus models that for us here. And number five, he uses a teachable moment in speaking of water and of a spring. And later with his disciples, he does this with food, using, you know, teachable moments. Finding some everyday common analogies and pictures to use for deeper spiritual truths. And then number six, Jesus ends up divulging his true identity as the promised Messiah in verse 26. And only when she's able to accept it. Notice that in verse 25, she knows something about the Messiah. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And when it gets to that point in the conversation, Jesus then says to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, of course, when we share the gospel, the gospel isn't about us. 
It's not divulging our identity to somebody, but it's at what point do we, do we really press home the idea who Jesus is and what he demands of people to come to believe in him? And the trick here is to be able to recognize when they might accept it. So do we, like, when do we really go for, go for the decision to press somebody to make a decision? Do we do that when there's no indication at all they really understand or accept it or can't accept it? But if we're able to recognize that they, they understand some spiritual truths, maybe we could press that home that this is who Jesus is and this is what he calls for and re- what he requires. I think Jesus speaks about this in a couple of places, about knowing through wisdom, knowing when to press and when to not press too far. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. You know, this is the the pearls kind of symbolizing the message of the kingdom. You know, we should be eager to share the good news, but yet we should wisely discern the character of those that we're sharing it with. We don't go on just indiscriminately continuing sharing the gospel with somebody who's just adamantly rejecting it. There's a point at which you you just move on. Maybe for a more opportune time, but you just, you've proclaimed what you can proclaim and then you move on. Jesus gave these instructions to his disciples, Matthew chapter 10, and you go into a village, if they don't hear you, shake the dust off your feet and move on. But if you do get the opportunity and they're ready to accept it, then share what it is that Jesus calls people to do, to repent and to believe in him. Because he is, as the townspeople said, he is the savior of the world. Friends, maybe this would be an opportunity for us to um, hopefully and this passage would be inspiring us to lift up our eyes to, to look for opportunities where we could share the good news with people. I know it's been true for me. I've been very hesitant to do that in recent years. And I'm convicted by what God's word has for us here. To no longer hide behind lockdowns and masks and those kinds of things, but now to really re-engage into sharing and looking for opportunities to share the good news about Jesus with others. That's what this passage was challenging me with. And I hope this challenges you as well. Despite the busyness of our life, may we look for an opportunity. Let's establish rapport Humbly with those around us. Challenge their their thinking. Engage in, in conversation. Leave a pebble in their shoe. May we overcome our fear of being misunderstood and to just clearly and as simply as we can explain the good news of, of Christ. Capturing whatever teachable moment that we can so that perhaps someone that we know would come by the power of God to say, 
Jesus is the Savior of the world. Do you want to be part of that? I do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for the truth that he spoke here in this passage. For us to lift up our eyes and see that the fields are ripe, white with harvest. God, I would pray that all of us in this day, we would, we too would have our eyes raised to see what it is that you might be doing even in a in a world that seems to be going further and further away from you god i pray that you would give us all the courage to look up and to see and to see what opportunities you might bring before us to share the truth of your word and of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for convicting us of our need to do that, to engage in this harvest. And give us the courage and boldness to follow you obediently in this way. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen.